1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we irradiate weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we deep dive into small modular nuclear reactors. But first up, here's news of vaccination against hair loss. Rod Sinclair, Professor of Dermatology at the University of Melbourne, is recruiting people for a clinical trial for a cure for baldness, based on blocking prolactin. Hair loss affects about half of all men and women over 40. Minoxidil is the main drug currently prescribed for hair loss, but can have severe side effects on libido and your ability to experience sexual pleasure, and it's not very effective for many people. The commonest form of hair loss is from androgenetic alopecia, or pattern hair loss, which happens as both men and women age, depending on the genes they inherit. This is a process where the individual hair follicles get smaller, in a particular pattern across the scalp. They shrink at the temples, then over the crown in men, whereas in women, follicles shrink in the frontal scalp on top of their heads. When a young man starts growing facial hair, over a few years the hair grows longer and thicker. With androgenetic hair loss, it's the reverse. Hair grows thinner and shorter over the years. Studies have shown a strong link between prolactin and hair loss in animals and humans. Prolactin is a hormone that promotes lactation in women. Women often lose hair in childbirth from prolactin. Shedding of hair and fur in animals has shown to be controlled by prolactin. Hair follicles have prolactin receptors. More prolactin has been shown to be associated with more hair loss and less hair regrowth. Professor Sinclair's new approach is the development of monoclonal antibodies to reduce the prolactin in the body. Monoclonal antibodies are proteins designed to find and bind to their target molecules or cells to teach the immune system to attack and eliminate them. A monoclonal antibody to prolactin teaches your immune system to inactivate and eliminate prolactin so that your prolactin levels fall and stay low, which may reverse prolactin's hair loss activity and allow hair to regrow. In the clinical trials so far, the monoclonal antibody against prolactin was given for six months, and the people in the trial still had normal hair regrowth four years later. If the next round of clinical trials works out, this would be a cure for baldness rather than a lifelong treatment—a vaccine for hair loss. Another form of hair loss, alopecia areata is an autoimmune condition that can cause baldness in people of any age, even children. Baricitinib is a drug previously used to treat rheumatoid arthritis and COVID-19. It was approved in July 2022 to treat alopecia areata. A scalp cooling device invented by Professor Sinclair reduces the requirement for wigs after chemotherapy from 95% of people to only 15%. In the show notes I'll put a link to Professor Sinclair's interview with Hilary Harper on Radio National's Life Matters and a link to sign up for his Melbourne clinical trial. I hope the monoclonal antibody treatment is affordable as it's unlikely to be covered by Medicare. And NASA's Artemis One moon mission launch has been postponed for this week. I can't help thinking it reminds me of something.
3: We
0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. Command pilot for this first landing, astronaut Neil Armstrong. It will be Armstrong who steps cautiously out onto the moon for the first time. Armstrong had this to say about space and going to the moon.
2: I suppose every, uh, every age of history has had its challenges of the time. It seems to me we're particularly fortunate in our age of history to be faced with perhaps one of the, the greatest challenges, to go out into space, to, to break the, the shackles of gravity and find the answers to questions that have been uh, asked by scientists and philosophers alike for, for years it is certainly one of the most exciting challenges of all time. But I think even more more important than the answers that we'll be able to find, the answers about the origin of our solar system and the answers about how we can most practically exploit this new knowledge will be the fact that we'll get a whole bunch of new questions that we've never before even thought to ask and this will be the, the challenge to the next generation.
1: Are small, modular nuclear reactors the solution to our energy problems? The Liberal National Party Coalition, after nine years of taking no action on nuclear in government, have turned around in opposition to insist that nuclear power is the only way forward for Australia because real Conservatives aren't afraid of nuclear power's dangers, since making it small and modular will solve all of the problems, including that nuclear isn't profitable. Small modular reactors are nuclear power stations made in a factory instead of built on site. And they make only a third as much power as a conventional nuclear reactor, unless you put a bunch of them next to each other. Nuclear power isn't needed in Australia because we have an abundance of solar, wind, geothermal, battery minerals and hydroelectricity. Nuclear reactors take about 20 years to build which is too long to help lower carbon dioxide emission and slow down the climate disaster. Nuclear power is enormously more expensive to build, maintain, fuel and decommission than any other form of power. Each new design has been more expensive than the last. Nuclear power is not profitable without government subsidies anywhere in the world. Commissioning, building, running, mining the fuel, and decommissioning nuclear reactors also releases huge amounts of carbon dioxide. All nuclear power stations are designed to make nuclear weapons fuel. This is why nuclear reactors are designed to use uranium 235 instead of the more common uranium 238. This makes nuclear power stations a target for war, terrorism, and crime. And ultimately, nuclear pollution is toxic. 240,000 years. It's so radioactive it constantly needs more water to cool the waste or it catches fire. When I was a physics undergraduate, I was a supporter of nuclear power because Australian Sinrock was going to safely lock up dangerous radioactive waste in the crystal structure of its synthetic rock. Unfortunately, later research showed that synrock leaks radioactive waste before it stops being toxic, and nobody has even the barest idea of a better solution. The world's best practice is in Finland, where nuclear waste is stored deep underground in a salt mine dug underneath the nuclear reactor, which is built on an island. Nobody else has copied this best practice. Australia plans for an above-ground nuclear waste dump for mild waste, followed by a shallow waste dump for medium waste, eventually perhaps followed by a deeper waste dump for nuclear power reactor waste, if necessary. It's taken 40 years to choose a site for an above-ground mild nuclear waste dump on farmland in South Australia. I hate to think how far into the future a deep underground waste dump will take. If small modular nuclear reactors are all over the place, as suggested by advocates, then the waste will have to travel long distances to get to safer storage in a dump. And they might have accidents on the way. Small modular nuclear reactors are classified as producing 300 megawatts or less, each about enough to power around 100,000 homes. They're projected to cost about $3 billion each, give or take another $3 billion or more. This is three times the cost to build a solar power plant that produces the same amount of power, without any fuel. Small modular reactors are projected to produce power that costs anywhere from $65 to $150 per megawatt hour, compared to just $30 per megawatt hour for solar power, which gets cheaper every year. It's more than twice as expensive. Some designs call for a 30-year supply of fuel to be delivered inside the reactors with 2.5 tonnes of toxic waste to be disposed of at the end. Some designs are refuelled every 10 years, some every 18 months. Having the fuel built in makes it difficult and expensive to take the uranium out and use it directly in nuclear weapons. Some designs also trap the nuclear waste inside, so that it's difficult and expensive to take it out and use it in nuclear weapons, or sell it for nuclear weapons. Or, in fact, store it safely somewhere. The intention is small modular reactors are built in factories, and then transported across the ocean, across the land, to wherever they're wanted. This adds a risk of traffic accidents and theft on the roads and piracy and weather accidents at sea. They're modular in the sense that each unit can be assembled next to another and scaled up or down to meet local electricity needs. Conventional nuclear reactors take around 20 years to build and start up. There are large modular reactors, like the Westinghouse AP1000 reactors built in the US and China, which ended up costing way more to build and took longer than promised. Advocates of small modular nuclear reactors say that because they're made in a factory, it's only three years to build on site. They don't want to count the factory assembly time. In reality, the factories won't be running day and night, and the factories won't leave lots of fuelled nuclear power plants on the shelves waiting for buyers. They'll be made on commission. The problem is that there are no such factories. If Australia decided to use small modular nuclear reactors tomorrow, it would still be 20 years at best before we could switch one on. Advocates say you can put the small reactors anywhere, but they still need a nearby water source for constant cooling. And, like coal power plants, which also need a constant water supply for cooling, they don't work very well when your water supply heats up in summer. If an error in mass-manufactured small modular reactors were to result in safety problems, the whole job lot might have to be recalled. This happened with the Boeing 737 MAX and 787 Dreamliner jetliners. But how do you recall a radioactive reactor? What will happen to an electricity system that relies on factory-made identical reactors that need to be recalled? Recalls are part of all mass manufacturing, from smartphones to jet aircraft. Without the factories, small modular reactors can never hope to achieve the theoretical cost reductions that are at the heart of their strategy to compensate for the lack of economies of scale. But without the cost reductions, there won't be the large number of orders to stimulate the investments needed to set up the supply chain in the first place. So it'll never happen.
3: You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com.
1: American Small Modular Reactor Company Newscale proposed a project in Idaho that rose from costing 3 billion in 2015 to over 6 billion in 2020 without any concrete being poured for construction to even start. Small modular reactors aren't any good at dispatchable power when demand goes up or down because you can't flick a switch to turn them on and off like you can with a 300 megawatt battery. A recent Stanford University study found that small modular nuclear reactors from the three biggest manufacturers will produce twice to 30 times as much radioactive waste for every megawatt hour of power compared to a conventional sized nuclear power plant. The study's lead author, Lindsay Kroll, said our results show that most small modular nuclear reactor designs will actually increase the volume of nuclear waste in need of management and disposal by factors of 2 to 30 for the reactors in our case study. For the study, Dr. Crowell analysed the nuclear waste streams from small modular reactors being developed by Toshiba, NewScale, and Terrestrial Energy. Study co-author Rodney Ewing said the analysis was difficult because none of these reactors are in operation yet. The new study found that because of their smaller size, small modular reactors will experience more neutron leakage than conventional reactors. This increased leakage affects the amount in composition of their waste streams. The more neutrons that are leaked, the greater the amount of radioactivity created by the activation process of neutrons. The study found that small modular reactors will generate at least nine times more neutron-activated steel than conventional power plants. These radioactive materials have to be carefully managed prior to disposal, which will be expensive. The study also found that the spent nuclear fuel the radioactive waste, from small modular reactors will be discharging greater volumes per unit energy extracted and can be far more complex than the spent fuel discharged from existing nuclear power plants. The research team estimated that after 10,000 years, the radiotoxicity of plutonium in spent fuels discharged from the three study modules would be at least 50% higher than the plutonium in conventional spent fuel energy unit extracted. That is, the nuclear waste will be half again as radioactively dangerous after 10,000 years of storage. Their paper was titled Nuclear Waste from Small Modular Reactors and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in May 2022. A small modular reactor is expected to use 390 million gallons, or nearly 2 billion litres of water, every day. Small nuclear reactors still have the same kinds of safety needs as large reactors. The heat generated by the reactor core has to be removed both under normal and accident conditions to keep the fuel from overheating, becoming damaged and releasing radioactivity. The passive natural circulation cooling and current designs could be effective under many conditions but not under all accident conditions. For example, For the new-scale design, a large earthquake could send concrete debris into the pool, stopping the circulation of water or air. Where there's a number of modules, accidents affecting more than one small module may cause complications that could overwhelm the capacity to cope with multiple failures. Because small modular reactors have weaker containment systems than conventional reactors, there would be greater damage if a hydrogen explosion occurred. An extra containment structure over the top would prevent large-scale releases of radioactivity in the case of a severe accident. But that would make individual small modular reactor units unaffordable. The result? Companies like Newscale now move to projects called medium nuclear reactors, with 12 modular units under a single containment structure. Not really small anymore. Putting the small modular reactors underground is touted as a safety solution to avoid aircraft attacks and earthquakes, but that increases the risks from flooding. In the event of an accident emergency, crews would have much greater difficulty accessing underground reactors. Small modular reactors will need a larger number of workers to generate a kilowatt of electricity than what is required by large reactors. In the case of security staffing, this becomes important both in a densely populated area and in an isolated one. There have been claims by nuclear advocates that the first ever working small modular nuclear reactor reached criticality in China in late 2021, only 18 years after it was announced. This reactor is rated at 200 megawatts and is completely different to the designs proposed for anywhere else in the world because it's a demonstration research reactor. It's a pebble bed reactor, cooled by helium instead of water. This makes it eye-wateringly more expensive to run than a water-cooled reactor. Helium costs 100 times more than natural gas, and of course water is practically free when you're next to a river. At the present rate of consumption, there'll be no helium left on Earth in 30 years. High-temperature gas-cooled reactors use graphite as a moderator and helium as a coolant with uranium-235 fuel in the form of 6cm pebbles. Each pebble has an outer layer of graphite and contains 12,000 four-layer ceramic coated fuel particles dispersed in a matrix of graphite powder. Pebble-based reactors are less likely to melt down than a conventional reactor, but more likely the graphite will catch fire. It's small because it's a demonstration model. It's not modular because it's not made in a factory, and the Chinese government plans next to scale it up to a full-size 650-megawatt reactor. If we rule out this Chinese experimental helium-cooled reactor, then there are still, as of 2022, no small modular nuclear power reactors operating anywhere in the world. But they have been on the drawing board for over 20 years. Dr. Ziggy Switkowski... The former head of the Australian Nuclear Scientific and Technical Organisation, who chaired a federal review of nuclear power in 2006, told the 2019 federal parliamentary inquiry about small modular nuclear reactors that on paper they look terrific, but also flagged that we won't know the potential for small modular reactors until the small modular reactors are deployed in quantity. And that's unlikely to happen for another 10 or so years. Even that time frame now looks optimistic. In 2019, the Rolls-Royce company proposed a 440 megawatt plant with a reported price tag of $2.7 billion for Australia. A new report by the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis describes the small modular reactor project Newscale is building for the Utah-associated municipal power System. It's the first and only small modular reactor design to receive design approval from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The report says, too late, too expensive, too risky and too uncertain. That, in a nutshell, describes Newscale's planned small modular nuclear reactor project, which has been in development since 2000 and will not begin commercial operations before 2029, if ever. The report flags that recent nuclear industry experience shows that build times for new nuclear reactor designs have taken more than twice as long to build as the owners projected. The researchers concluded that the small modular reactor industry would not be viable unless the industry received several hundred billion dollars of direct and indirect subsidies over the next several decades. John Quiggan, Professor of Economics at the University of Queensland, warns us... The US government and the US nuclear industry are very keen to develop and export small modular nuclear reactors for two main reasons. Both explained in a 2018 paper titled US Nuclear Power, The Vanishing Low Carbon Wedge. With the decline of large nuclear reactors around the world... There's a need to maintain the technology and the expertise of trained staff necessary to support the nuclear weapons industry. The only hope for commercial viability of small nuclear reactors is in exporting them. The domestic American market is too small. So Australia is seen as a desirable market. Small modular nuclear reactors cost more to make, produce more waste, make more expensive power, only exist... To spread nuclear weapons technology and expertise, produce nuclear weapons fuel, and produce waste that's even more toxic than conventional nuclear waste. Dangerous for 240,000 years. Every single attempt to commercialise them over the past 50 years has failed. It's hard not to see small modular nuclear reactors as being like carbon capture and storage technology. Vaporware a promise for technology that hasn't really been invented yet and may never work. Neither technologies are needed when solar and wind power are already much cheaper and cleaner and are growing cheaper exponentially. Nuclear power is obsolete, even if it was small and modular.
0: And in the future as in the past, in research
3: as in the products developed from it, remember You can be sure if it's Westinghouse. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 FM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in North East Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on Diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ian wolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusion radio i'm ian wolf join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on diffusion science radio
0: science is fun it helps you to learn to know and to appreciate